fishers caught unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, and as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of great fishes, an hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, Feed my lambs. He said unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved, because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. <coughs> verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went that saying abroad among the brethren, that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, He shall not die, but if I will, 
that he tarried till I come, what is that to thee? This is the disciple which testifieth of these things, and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. In the closing words of this gospel, the Apostle John asserts that he is the author of the book and that he can testify to its historical accuracy. We have this statement in verse 24, This is the disciple which testifieth of these things, and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John writes here in sincerity and in humility. As a mere disciple, this is the disciple. All the way through the gospel, he is at pains to put himself down and to lift Christ up. And it is so even at the end of the gospel, he doesn't identify himself, he just refers to himself as the disciple. Elsewhere in the gospel, he uh, writes of himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved simply in that way not I think to in any way boast of the fact that Jesus loved him but rather to express that he is nothing without the love of Christ and that is the one thing he cannot get over that the Son of God loved him and gave himself for him. And then we notice again in that 24th verse that he solemnly testifies to the fact that he has been impartial, that he has been unbiased. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things. You testify concerning what you have heard, concerning what you have seen. You bear witness to those things which your senses have known. And the Apostle John would have agreed with the Apostle Peter at this point, that we have not followed cunningly devised fables. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things. Then thirdly we notice that he draws attention to these things. The things which pertain 
to God in Christ and to the salvation and to the everlasting life of believing sinners. We're thankful that these things have been written. The things which belong to our peace, the things which concern our soul's well-being, the things which concern eternity. We do speak, as the Lord says, what we do know. And we do testify what we have seen. So John could write. Fourthly, he leaves hereby the unbeliever without excuse. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote them. So no man can plead ignorance or deficiency of knowledge or confusion. These things have been written down and the unbeliever has no excuse because this word of God sets forth the truth. Fifthly, we observe in that verse that he says, we know, using the plural. He identifies himself with others who have received these things, who have experienced these things and who can therefore relate these things to other people and describe them to other people. It is not therefore the uh, product of one man's fertile imagination or one man's dream. But we know, we know when we compare what our senses tell us with what is written here, we know that this testimony is true. Then also we notice that word true. He declares what he has written to be true. Despite the opposition and the objection which is often heard from the world. And in this he appears to have imbibed the very spirit of the Saviour who said in John 14 remember those choice and comforting words in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so I would have told you. And here John says if it were not so in effect I would have told you. I tell you, because it is so, we know that his testimony is true. Now that is the introduction to the last verse in the Gospel, 
And I think to one of the most wonderful verses in Holy Scripture. The 25th verse reads, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Of course, we do know that we do not possess the record of everything that the Lord Jesus said during his public ministry. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 18, for example, we read of John the Baptist many other things. In his exhortation preached he unto the people of the Lord himself. It was true that he taught from city to city, from town to town, to village to village. We don't have the record of all that he preached. It's also true that we don't have the record of all the wonderful works which he performed the Gospels and this Gospel of John give us a mere selection of those works and describe some of the most notable miracles of the Lord. But we are aware that many are not recorded. And yet, in Matthew 4:23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those that were possessed with devils, and those that were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. Only a small portion of his healing works are set down in this book. And John therefore rightly says, if everything was written down, the subject could never be adequately dealt with. If they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Now from that verse, I want to speak tonight of three things. The first is the wonderful Lord. There are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. There is something about the Lord Jesus Christ which is infinite. And hence those expressions we 
come across of those phrases indeed in the word of God like the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And again the unsearchable riches of Christ. And again the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. And again joy unspeakable full of glory and again great is the mystery of godliness however you view the Lord Jesus Christ you find yourself upon the edge of an ocean before something which cannot be contained either in the mind or in a book and if an attempt should be made John says I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written now if a book was written about my life and I suspect your life it wouldn't have to be many pages to deal adequately with what we have said perhaps and what we have done that's because we are so limited and that's because there is nothing very special about most of us but there was something unique about the Lord Jesus Christ and something amazing about his life about his works, about his doctrines. And if everything was faithfully written down concerning these things, well, the world would not contain the books that would have to be written. So wonderful is the Lord Jesus Christ and I want just for a few minutes to explore that. Christ was the true God. And therefore there was a glory about him. You will remember how the Gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the Word. A title of the Son of God. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. You know, when I was at college, we had a lady who came in to speak to the students once a week. And she was an elocutionist. She tried to teach us how to project our voices and how to speak properly and appropriately in the pulpit. I can't honestly say that I remember very much of what she said, and perhaps that's apparent to my hearers. But I remember one thing she said, and she illustrated how important it was to read the scriptures intelligently, and as they were intended to be written. And she said, make sure you put the emphasis in the right place. 
And she referred to the beginning of John's Gospel. And she said, most people, when reading the opening verses, read it thus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. She said, the emphasis is not upon the verb there, but upon the noun. And that scripture should be read in this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I'm sure she's right. The Lord Jesus Christ was mysteriously but completely divine. And everything, therefore, that he said and did was a revelation of deity. John 1.18 no man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. The Lord Jesus Christ, being fully God, revealed God in who he was, what he said, and what he did. And how can you confine to pages the being of God? It cannot be done. It cannot all be set down. The mystery of his Godhood, his full and absolute deity, the one who said, I and the Father are one. That cannot be set forth in a few words. You think of how it was demonstrated in the Gospel of John. How he was shown to have power and authority over everything. Over a man's impotent body. Over rampant disease. Over the elements upon the sea. Over death itself. The Lord Jesus said concerning the raising of Lazarus. This is for the glory of God. And when Christ spoke those words, Lazarus, come forth. And the scripture says simply, and he came forth. What a display of deity was there. And how can you sum up that in a few sentences, or a few paragraphs, or a few chapters? Or a few books. The power that brought that to pass. And then John's Gospel more than 
those others we call the Synoptic Gospels, John's Gospel includes so many of his wonderful extended discourses. His teaching on the water of life, upon the bread of life, upon him being the resurrection and the life, And we wonder at those words that proceeded from his lips. Oh yes, there was grace there. There was goodness there. But there was incalculable wisdom there. As Paul would later write, that in him was to be found the very wisdom of God. So wise his sayings. They wondered at them. They marveled at them. They were amazed at his doctrine. And how can that be contained in a few books? All that he revealed, made known, impressed upon the minds of men, can't be done. And I haven't touched yet the love of God which was in him and was mediated through him so that men perceived that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Yes, it was spoken, but it was demonstrated in the way he looked after his own and in the way he blessed his devoted followers. Oh, they were overwhelmed by the love of God, a love such as they had never seen in evidence before. Not so fully, so gloriously. They knew in their hearts, as in the presence of Jesus, that God is love. And that is a a fundamental, it's it's a leading, and it's a beautiful perfection of God. And there it was, in Christ. Now a Christ who is God defies restriction in a book or in a library of books. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Secondly, there was about this wonderful Lord An indescribable beauty as to his manhood. The 45th Psalm touched on this matter when it spoke of the things pertaining to the king who was yet to come. And we read this, Thou art fairer than the children of men. 
If we consider now his manhood, the man Christ Jesus, never any man walked this earth like him. He was fairer than them all. And it's for that reason that a voice came from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is why the angels worshipped him. And that is why men desired him. Because he offered them what no other man could offer them. He was the desire of nations. And as a man he excelled others in his goodness. In that he was prepared to give himself and his blessing to the most unworthy of men. He ate and he drank with sinners. And he became the spiritual physician of those that were morally and spiritually sick. As sick as could be. We stand from afar and we admire the loveliness of the manhood of Jesus Christ. We are impressed not only in his goodness, but we are impressed with his compassion. As man, recall how at the end of Matthew 9 he looked upon the multitudes and he saw them as Sheep having no shepherd. And the scripture says he had compassion upon them. Oh, the lovely pity of the Lord Jesus Christ. How excelling it was. How distinctive it was. The way he could have compassion upon the, the woman who was a sinner and speak such Kind words to her, knowing her faith. The way he could have compassion upon the dying thief to speak words of consolation to him in his final moments in this world. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then there was his meekness as man. He didn't take offense. He didn't turn away at unbelief. He didn't forsake on account of being provoked. On the one occasion when the Lord Jesus spoke of his own heart, he said this in Matthew 11, Come unto me, and these Words contain the reason why men should come, because I am meek and lowly of heart. I will not respond to you as you have responded to me. Oh, the meekness of Christ. I could speak of many other characteristics of Christ as man, but I tell you in the words of Solomon's song, he is altogether lovely. 
and the beauty of his manhood. Because it excels all that we have known, all that we have ever seen, all the books in the world could not contain the full description of it. I have spoken of his deity and I have spoken of his humanity, but let me speak thirdly of Christ as the God-man. For in him the two natures, divine and human, met in one person, united in the Lord Jesus Christ, but not confused. The God-man. Wherefore does he thus appear as the God-man? To be the mediator, of course. That he might lay hand upon God, as it were, and lay hand upon man, and bring the two together. He was the bridge. And he was the bridge from deity to humanity. From humanity to deity. If we had a saviour who was God, but not man, then he could not have done for us what he did in his subjection to the law and in his suffering of death. God himself cannot die. He cannot be subject, he cannot suffer. If he was only man, he could not have saved us. For whatever he did in life and death, it would have no value to ransom an innumerable company of sinners from the grave and from hell. Therefore, Christ was the God-man. He brought power and he brought value to everything that he did and then he, under the law, obeyed and died as man. And in that God-man, whom we call the mediator, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So Christ had all the fullness imparted to him and communicated to him and deposited in him for distribution amongst the souls of men and women in all their need. Was there need of grace? He would give it. Grace upon grace. Was there need of pardon? He would give it. Thy sins are forgiven thee. Be of good cheer. Was the need of acceptance? He would give it. This man receiveth sinners. There was a saving fullness 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, which would meet the needs of sinners throughout the entire world. Indeed, it would meet the need of every sinner that sought help from him. And he turned none away. And his resources were never exhausted. And no sinner ever found himself in disappointment in the presence of the God-man. How can you put that down? How can you somehow sum up that in a few books? I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. The wonderful Lord. I haven't spoken of his offices. Those mediatorial offices which he fulfilled, which he exercised. As mediator, he sustained three particular offices. He was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was a king. But such a prophet. Why the gospel say of him, he was a prophet mighty in word and in deed. He revealed what no other man, even in that office, ever revealed. He had been in eternity. He had sat in the council of the eternal three when salvation was conceived and when it was designed he had heard the Father. And when he came into this world he said as in John 3 we speak that we do know and we testify that we have seen it's the we of majesty there. The references to him exclusively. I speak what I do know and testify what I have seen. And he was able to make known even the content of the heart of God. God so loved the world. Never was there a prophet like him. Never was the gospel so clearly revealed as in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ men said never man spake as this man not as the scribes not as our teachers not as our prophets he speaks with authority Thus the office of prophet. Then there's the office of priest. And you may say to me, but there were other priests comparable to him. There were no priests comparable to him. 
the other priests, the Aaronic priests, the Jewish priests, they were mere, frail human beings. He was otherwise. He was the Lord. They offered their sacrifices, but they were of lambs and of bulls upon crude Jewish altars. Ineffective. And that is why they had those sacrifices to be repeated year by year continually. But he offered not a bull or a lamb. He offered his holy humanity upon the cross. In his divine nature, he presented his human nature as a sacrifice for the sins of all God's elect in every age. Never, never was such a sacrifice laid upon such an altar and so effective that Hebrews 10 tells us that he needs not repeatedly to offer for this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God. And King, oh, he fulfilled that. What a king. What power, what might he demonstrated, but never more so than in the conquest of unbelieving, rebellious sinners. So that those who were destitute of goodness and those who had a reputation for evil and those abhorred by society the publicans the tax collectors they were subdued by him so that lions became lambs and all by the power of the king. King can, kings can rule nations. This king ruled hearts. Never was such a king. And if we said all that was to be said about his officers... We could never exhaust it. All the books in the world could not fully describe it. And how he compares to that one who is planned to visit this country later this year who 
claims to be infallible when he is the most fallible of all men. Who claims to set apart a priesthood which offers the sacrifice of the Mass continually upon Roman altars in defiance of the doctrine of God's word that he died unto sin once. Different from that man who will come if he does come in all the so-called dignity of his position, exercising his power usurped over the churches, his affaimed lordship, Christ's a genuine lordship, before him the Pope of Rome is as dust. Christ Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me speak one more thing of this wonderful Lord. That the object of Christ in appearing in this world, in that ministry which he exercised, in life and in death was the everlasting salvation of his people. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Gospels record that even before his birth thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. No one has ever done that. Deliverers have been raised up who saved Others from an oppressing enemy or from a cruel foe. But never has anyone been able to save men and women from sin. That was the prerogative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that prerogative he exercised and that prerogative he fulfilled. He saved sinners. Salvation is therefore in him. The angel said unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour. That's what set heaven ringing. A saviour was given. And such a saviour as would save all that came unto him. For him that cometh to me, this saviour could say, I will in no wise cast out. And however vile a sinner may have been, and however gross their sins, however stained their character, however lost their life, he demonstrated his ability to save. The Father sent the Son, as John would later say in his epistle, to be the Savior of the world. Ah. 
I suppose, indeed I believe, that these grand things were so immense, so utterly glorious, that they defy the limits of a record. They were written, everyone. I suppose that even the world could not contain the books that should be written. The wonderful Lord. Let me pass on secondly to the precious book. Notwithstanding the fact which I've mentioned, The Spirit of God inspired holy men and moved the Apostle John to write. The truth of Scripture on this is that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And thus they wrote. So that what was written, as Peter says, was prophecy of the scripture. And while John concedes that such is the glory of Christ, that it could never all be said, and it could never all be written, Yet in the previous verse he says, This disciple testifieth of these things and wrote these things. And he offers us a portrait of Christ. And the opening of his book means that we can look to the very horizon even though we cannot penetrate beyond into the realm of eternity itself. What is true of John's Gospel, that something was recorded, something was committed to writing about this wonderful Lord, is true of every part of Scripture. What says John in chapter 5? Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. And these are they that testify of me. The scriptures. After his resurrection to the two on the way to Emmaus. Jesus opened to them in all the scriptures. The things concerning himself. John writes in the last book of the Bible, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All these books were written by prophets. Men who were supernaturally wrought upon to produce the very word of God without error, without mixture of error. The absolute truth. 
truth of the eternal God within the covers of this book. And it's all about Christ. From the start to the finish. Now, if you take my first point, that we have such a wonderful Lord, that not even a world library could do justice to him, you will take my second point, that what we do have concerning him, within the covers of the Holy Scripture, constitute the most precious of all possessions, the most precious of all books. I would say, my friends, that this book we call the Bible is the most excellent of all God's works. And I say that on the basis of Psalm 138 where the psalmist says he hath magnified his word above all his name. However else he has revealed himself, however else he has set forth his glory, his word rises above all of these other names. And God has magnified his word as the greatest and most excellent of all his works. This book must be a priceless possession. I was so impressed with that truth many years ago that when God called me to the holy ministry, I counted it the greatest privilege of my life to read to expound and proclaim the word of God. Furthermore, when I see this word of God derided and rejected by masses of ignorant men, knowing its worth, by reason of doctrine and by reason of experience, my spirit is stirred to defend this precious book. And when I see the ills of the world as manifested in our poor, wretched society at this present time and know that the remedy for these ills is contained within this book. I am the more moved to preserve it. That it may be made known that sinners of every rank, of every hue, may find mercy and recovery and transformation and life eternal through this book. My dear friends, it's amazing grace that has given us this book. 
We read in Exodus that God gave the tables of stone to Moses. In the New Testament we read in the high priestly prayer that the Lord Jesus said to his father, I have given them thy word and they have believed it. How incredible is that? That God looking upon this fallen humanity in all its disgrace and in all its vileness has given them a book whereby they might know a saviour and know the salvation of God and the everlasting salvation of God. Furthermore, what grace is that? And what a book it is. Paul says to Timothy that he has known the holy scriptures which are able to make him wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Have you ever pondered that little adjective there? The holy scriptures. The scriptures is another way of referring to writings. But these are not the writings of men. These are the writings of God. God by his spirit so inspired John, the other apostles and the prophets before them, that though God took their personalities and used their styles, yet what was finally conveyed by process of their writing was acknowledged God's own word infallible and inerrant in every statement, in every doctrine, in every teaching. Holiness pervades the whole. Does it speak on history? It is holy. It is without blemish, without flaw. Does it speak on science? It is holy. It is without error. It is without mistake. Does it speak on theology? It is holy. Unlike all the writings of the religions of this world, it is set apart. It is different. It is pure. There is no mistake in this book whatsoever. And that is why, as Bible-believing Christians, we put such emphasis upon the Word of God in these days. Where our fathers put it, We believe in the centrality of preaching because it's the word that matters. We believe the chief instrument of God in the salvation of sinners in this world is the public preaching of the word of God. It pleases God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And therefore, We give no place to modern gimmickry, desperately trying to get people into the church by worldly means. There is a church in Salisbury from which I come, supposed to be evangelical, boasts of a congregation of several hundred people. A great hoarding outside the church in recent weeks has been, come and watch the World Cup here on a big screen and that was even on the Lord's day people went into that place 
to watch the World Cup. Not only was the so-called vicar and the parish council profaning the Sabbath, they were actually encouraging other people to profane the Sabbath day. What a state is it to which we have come. And what is needed today? A little more truth in the instrument which God says he will bless, which is mighty through God to the pulling down of the strongholds of unbelief. What is it to which I refer? The word of God. The Lord Jesus knew what the most powerful means was in this world. And before he ascended, he said, go and preach the gospel to every creature. You can leave behind your music group. You can leave behind your concerts, but take with you all over the world the word of God. Preach the word. And that is the instrument which God Almighty uses. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That is what the apostles did. They went everywhere, teaching and preaching the word of God. They filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. And subsequently they filled the world with their doctrine. We need desperately return to this book, this precious, precious book, in which there are secrets which are not revealed anywhere else. Secrets of eternity, secrets of the purpose of God, secrets of the grace of God. Secrets of the kingdom of God. Secrets of the promise of God. Men in their ingenuity can never find out these secrets for themselves. But God in his condescension is pleased to tell all we need to know to reach heaven. Oh, you say, tell me, where does God Reveal these secrets. And the answer is in this precious book. The subject, the wonderful Lord, and here the document, whilst everything could never be written. Bless God for what is written and what is written. John says these things are written in the previous chapter that ye might believe. So as Protestants we believe in the sufficiency of scripture. God has not told us everything my friends. We would have to be Men and women with infinite minds and with never-ending lives to read his word if that were so. But I tell you this, he has told us all that we need to know 
to be saved and all that we need to know to be kept and all that we need to know to be brought to his everlasting kingdom. These scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation. That is why we don't need the Pope of Rome. We don't need his traditions. We don't need the edicts of his councils. We don't need the testimony of his church, which is the church of Antichrist. But we as poor sinners need this wonderful book. Now we are privileged to possess it. I hope I hope that breaks upon your soul when you hold this book. This isn't any other book. The higher critics in the last century and beyond the century before would have told us this is just an example of human literature. Man's attempt to explore the infinite, to know God. It is no such thing. This book is not like any other human literature. It's not man's attempt to discover the infinite. It is God's work to make infinite things known to us. It is not, therefore, riddled with error, but it is replete with truth. We believe that. And though there be very few who affirm it today, we hold this book and affirm our belief in its authority, in its inerrancy, and in its utter and complete trust within us and upon this book we are prepared to stake our eternity because there could be no better place upon which to commit our hope than on the rock the impregnable rock of holy scripture the precious book and I must conclude now We've spoken of the wonderful Lord and the precious book. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. But bless God we have one book that tells all. All that makes a sinner safe And all that ultimately makes a sinner happy in heaven. Oh, love that book. Don't attend a church where that book is not preached. Don't align yourself with people who do not revere the sacred pages of this book. Do not countenance any religion which is untrue to this book. Live and die by the testimony of this book. 
And you will live well. And you will die well. Because this book, unlike any other, contains the oracles of God and is the word of the ever-living God. The wonderful Lord, the precious book, and finally, the humble soul. Mysteries surround the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But praise God, a revelation of him has been given. By inspiration it has been written down. By sovereign preservation it has been kept through the years. And by wondrous grace it is brought to us in our day that we might believe that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be overwhelmed with hope of a kingdom everlasting. Now what do you do before this book? I would say as I conclude, intellect must bow before this book. Human knowledge must lie prostrate before this book. Wisdom must yield their rights and accord to this book the wisdom of God. The humble soul receives this book. And is guided not by its instinct, not by its knowledge, but by the doctrine of the Word of God, and by that alone. We trust this book humbly when we come to faith. The book says, Whoever believeth in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. We take the book as truth and we believe on the Son of God and believing we have life. We trust this book in living. God thereby guides us through all the changing scenes of life. He guides us surely. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And all around us in the religions of the world and in the philosophy of men is abject darkness and the light streams from the lamp upon our feet and upon our path. And we trust this book and we live by this book and we go by this book because this book is right. The ways of the Lord are right. It tells me how to live. It tells me how to live with God. It tells me how to live a holy life in this fallen world. It tells me how to keep myself from evil. 
It tells me how to enjoy fellowship with my God. I live by this book. And it tells me how to die. When comes that final hour? Don't bring to me the atheist who has been spouting his nonsense and his blasphemy for many a year. Don't bring to me the skeptic who will cause nothing but unsettlement of mind and perturbance of soul. Remember what Walter Scott said. Now reflect not upon his spiritual state. But just before he died he said, bring me the book. And his servant said, which book? To which he replied, there is only one book. There is only one book by which a man can die. A book that tells me, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. That's what I need to know. A book that tells me that death is not the end. To die is gain. That's what I need to know. A book that tells me in that final moment that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what I need to know. Give me this book. Read me this book. In that last hour. I think back, my friends, to 20 years ago when my dear mother died. She'd been three days in a coma. And we were told on that last day that the end was imminent. And as children, we gathered round her bed. And an amazing thing happened. She broke from her coma in those last minutes. Never as long as I live will I remember the way she looked around at her children and her grandchildren, one by one. I was standing on the right-hand side of the bed, just next to her. Finally, she set her eyes on me. She could not speak, but I read her eyes. What have you now to say to me? I perceived there was no time to take out a Bible and find a passage. I began to recite scripture. One after another verse came into my mind and came forth from my lips. And the last scripture I had to quote was in my father's house are many mansions. 
If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I tell you, dear friends, that when I uttered that word, also, it seemed as if my mother said, "'Tis enough. I have peace." She laid back her head upon the pillow and departed. It was probably the most moving scene I have ever witnessed in my life. The sister on that ward broke down. She said, Mr. Watts, I have never seen that in all my life. I was able later to share the gospel with her in a private ward. It was as if, and you will pardon the personal illustration at the end now, but it was as if my mother would not die without the word of God. And I tell you this, because I lived through those moments, there was nothing else I could tell my mother but what was in that book. Human comfort would not have availed. Declaration of filial love would not have met the need. It was the red word of the written scripture proceeding from God which sustained my mother in death. And I believe it will sustain every believer. For my part, I cannot live Without this book, I dare not die without this book. Are you with me, dear friends? Do you say tonight, Amen.